The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Friday, June 3rd. Allagash and Deschutes, beers inspired from local terroir. Presented by Rob Todd and Jason Perkins from Allagash Brewing Company and Gary Fish, Veronica Vega, and Robin Johnson from Deschutes Brewery. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Sabre. Just to make sure everyone is in the right place, this is the room for Allagash and Deschutes, beers inspired from local terroir, or perhaps terror, depending on what goes on on the stage tonight. <laughs> My name is Steve Broad. I'm the brewmaster for Free State Brewing Company in Lawrence, Kansas, and I'll be your host for this evening's salon. Sabre, now in its ninth year and well-established as one of America's premier beer and food events, is brought to you by the Brewers Association, the national nonprofit trade association representing the country's small, independent craft brewers, which also produces the Great American Beer Festival, another of America's premier beer events coming up in early October in Denver. All our Sabre salons are being recorded for podcast listening and posterity by craftbeerradio.com, and they will be posted a week from now to craftbeer.com, your best source for information about the wide or wild world of American craft beer. If you have questions, please uh, wait for a microphone so we can get both your questions and the answers recorded. And you know, when you get that little feeling in the back of your head that I think I have a question, go ahead and put your hand up then so we can get a mic out to you and it's ready for the next break for these guys to take your question. Our speakers tonight will introduce the special one-time only Saber Symposium collaboration beer, showcasing local ingredients from both breweries regions. They'll discuss sustainable agriculture practices and share some other specialty beers that speak to their respective local terroir. Please welcome Rob Todd and Jason Perkins from Allagash Brewing Company in Portland, Maine, and Gary Fish, Veronica Vega, and Robin Johnson from Deschutes. Was that for us now? Are, are we, is it our turn to talk? Okay. The uh, no, we're I, we're really happy to be here, and, and this is a very cool project. Um, I think it started quite a long time ago. Rob and I have known each other for uh, a long, long time, and for the last several years, we've served on the Brewers Association board together. Um, up to and, and including the fact that Rob is the current chair of the board, and I am the current past chair of the board. And so we, we worked together a lot and we began talking about doing a collaboration, making a beer together and what would it be and all that kind of stuff. And I began to, to quiz some of our people about what would you do and, and uh, if you could and who would you do it with. And Veronica uh, was the one that, you know, the first thing she said was Allagash. I'd love to do it with Allagash. We all have our pet breweries, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, anyway, we didn't have a concept. We didn't have an outlet like this at the time. But we thought it would be great to get together and, and do something that could extend kind of both of our uh, opportunities. And, uh, and this is, is the result. And it's, it's very cool. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we, there are a lot of collaborations going on now, and this is a very collaborative industry, which is great. There are 4,400 breweries in the country, and yeah, it's getting competitive, but brewers are working together, and we get asked to do a lot of collaborations, but we, we just don't have the bandwidth to do too many because they do take up a lot of uh, time, emotional energy, resources, uh, capacity. But when Gary called me and said, hey, do you guys want to do a collaboration? We jumped at the opportunity because everyone at Allagash is are huge Deschutes fans. We have a ton of respect for Deschutes Brewery. And you know, we, we jumped at the opportunity, and it was, it was a lot of fun doing it. And uh, we had the opportunity to fly out and do a test batch with Veronica and Robin. We had a great time. Um, and yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then we brewed the actual beer that we're drinking now, and I'm sure we'll get into it um, at Allagash. Yeah, the, the idea that you know Portland, Maine, and we, although we're located, are headquartered in Bend, we have a brew pub in, in Portland, Oregon. And the idea of doing a Portland to Portland, uh, you know, we don't need a lot of excuses in this industry to make beer, <laughs> or, or drink beer for that matter. But you know, that seemed to be as, as reasonable as anything we've come up with. And so, uh, and you know, the story, I don't know who's telling the story of Pettigrew's well, chance. Well, I mean, I'll just begin by saying when, you know, Jason and, and Robin and I started on, on the call, we, just to get a sense of what we wanted to do, we kind of asked, you know, well, what's exciting you? What, what, what are you doing right now that's exciting? And we immediately both discussed the local maltsters in each region. And um, for us in Bend, um, it, it's, in Madras, Oregon, it's just uh, about an hour away, and um, the maltster is uh, is eighth generation farmer in that area and has begun um, growing and malting barley. Um, he's also working very closely with OSU to uh, create varieties that grow well in Central Oregon, and is I mean I've had just such great conversations with him about variety, barley variety, and how it contributes to flavor. And what you know, one of his quotes is, you know, imagine if somebody said that a wine variety didn't matter to flavor. But people for years have said that the variety of barley doesn't matter. It's the maltster that creates flavor in um, in malt. And so, uh, and, and then we discuss, you know, you guys have buck farms out there in Maine. So that was kind of the initial, like, well, we want to do something that showcases. Uh, these boutique maltsters in both of our regions and so we want you know kind of an, an elegant and simple beer to showcase what malt flavor can be um, um, in, in, an, in an elegant and simple recipe I guess. Yeah and just to, to kind of piggyback on the maltster side of things you know when Veronica mentioned you know local malt it was just it, she could have I could have said the exact same thing because we were in a, in a very similar boat where we'd been you know, kind of wanting for years to use uh, locally grown and locally malted uh, barley, but it just wasn't available. You know, we're in a state in Maine where barley's been grown there for, for generations, almost all for feed. Occasionally it would go off and get malted in Canada and, uh, and so on, but almost all for feed. And it just wasn't available for us. And, you know, one of the cool, uh, you know, kind of side effects of the growth of craft beer, there's many of them that you can talk about, but to see, you know, it's so nice to see these farmers, once again, the farmers we work with at Buck Farms are multi-generation as well, barley growers and potato growers as well. And now they have this opportunity to, to have another outlet for their crop, which is you know, just another great side effect of the growth of craft beer. 
And so uh, it's just the timing was just perfect because, you know, a year ago, you know, certainly five years ago, that just the quality wasn't there from, from bar malted barley in Maine. And it is now, and it, it's, it's really fantastic. I think the same thing's happening, happening in Oregon. Yeah. And that relationship with the farmer has been happening with brewers in the hop you know, side of things for many, many years and getting experimental varieties of hops and knowing your farmer and going to the farm and, and having that relationship. And so to have that with barley as well, now it's a new thing and it's very exciting, um, I think, to, to all of us. I mean, that was certainly like, okay, this is what's exciting right now in beer, you know, for us. Um, so there's malt samples in the front, and they are um, from each of the farms, and there's some in the back too. So maybe if you wanted you, to shake you out, you guys may could, need to pass them around yeah, a little bit because there's only a, a, a table, few but you sets can taste, in the room. Um, the different flavors um, from each variety. There's a, a main malt, and then there's four uh, mecha grade malts, um, all malted to different styles. So there's a pilsner, uh, um, Venora is the Vienna, the Pelton is the pilsner malt. Uh, because it is grown and, and, and malted there. Uh, you know, that's just... Like in a state wine right, or exactly. a state beer. <clears throat> that's another thing that's cool about both of the farms we're talking about here is, you know, uh, both of them both grow and malt the barley. Whereas, you know, in a lot of cases, even on the small scale malting scale, they're buying the barley from farmers and malting themselves. But in both, both these two maltsters, they're growing and, and malting both. Yeah, our, our, uh, the malt that we'll, both of us used comes from a farm way up in northern Maine um, called Buck, is it called Buck, 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 Buck yeah. Farms? And the Buck Boys, it's a multi-generational farm, and I'll probably get this story wrong, but they're basically potato farmers, and probably 90% of what they do is potatoes. They've done potatoes for generations, and I guess they were visiting some brewers interested in growing hops, and they were t trying to engage the brewers about potentially growing hops. And I guess the brewers were saying, well, geez, hops are maybe not too viable a crop in Maine. We really wish someone grew barley. And they were like, well, we actually do grow barley. It's a rotational crop. And they're like, really? So one thing led to another. And they took this barley, which they grow as a rotational crop. I guess they'll grow potatoes for two years on the farm and then uh, grow barley and clover on the farm for an off year, and they've turned that into a pretty viable business where they're growing malt quality barley, malting it right on the farm. And it was cool because Jason and I, well, you weren't on the trip that I was on, but we've both been up there and they're floor malting this grain. And it's pretty cool because I've never done this. I was able to drag a rake through the floor malt and you know put my hand right in the malt, eat the malt, and it, it, it was pretty cool to see. And I got to drive the combine, which is pretty awesome, too. <laughs> now that's cool. Um, but I'll also say just that, on the, just real quick on the potatoes, is potatoes for these guys are now just, it's all commodity-driven for them. Like, it's just, there's, it, you know, all their potatoes are being sold to huge companies and huge corporations, and they're getting killed on price and so on. And so potatoes for them are dying, and for them, this is just such a great opportunity for them to, you know, have a, have a relationship with the people who are using it and, and, and get a good price for what they're, that they're growing. Should we There's talk about the beer? Question. So, I think we should talk about the beer. Yeah. <laughs> first of all, huge fan of everything you guys both put out. Um, I had a quick question. So obviously all these malts are very different. They have different flavors and all that. And I'm sure you guys are doing a lot of like research into what you want to put into your different beers. How much research is go currently going into the different soils that 
you might be, or farmers might be planting these different barleys in. Um, so like you, you were talking about fitting the right, you know, the right barley in the right area. So I'm curious, like how the industry is evolving that way. Well, at least in Oregon, Oregon State University has a PhD student right now that is um, looking into barley flavor specifically, and so Deschutes is contributing to his project, and they, they have plantings in multiple plots in Oregon, and if you know Oregon, it's very diverse in, in, you know, in its different environments, um, and so we're also helping them with our sensory panel on tasting different varieties grown in different areas and seeing what that contributes and this the student has also you know genetically mapped out these different flavor uh, or these different uh, barley varieties and they have found where flavor is in the you know um, it, and that's just kind of a new thing you know I'll add one thing to what Jason mentioned are the buck farms is growing potatoes of course it's about 90% of their business probably it's a commodity um, it's commodity produce. The barley they're growing and malting, it actually costs us almost three times what our barley usually costs, but we're more than happy to spend that money for something that's locally produced to support small and sustainable agriculture. So, you know, I, I think... <laughs> but, I mean, the, the, this, is a vi this is viable all over the country, and I'm sure all the 4,400 craft brewers in all the, you know, in every community around this country would be more than happy to pay a premium, and hopefully customers will see the value in paying a premium for the beer to support this local agriculture. I was hoping that Jason and Rob wouldn't fall over when I sent them the invoice for the malt that we sent. He was like, it's not cheap. No, really. <laughs> That's about right. Well, it's, yeah, it's about small producers and, and, that's, and, and giving, getting to the point where they have a viable economic model that is sustainable. Not just, yeah, you know, we talk about sustainable agriculture as though this stuff just happens for free, and it doesn't, and it requires that level of support. And if there isn't a market that can afford the pricing that a really, really small producer has to have, then it won't happen. So, it, yeah, I, I think we're all we're all happy to be supported there. Assuming you guys are doing the roasting, roasting the malt. Th th this malt was not roasted. Yeah, I don't no, think. No, not this malt. I mean, for any of your beers, no. No, okay. we get them. Um, all the malt is the specialty malt we buy is all prepared by the maltsters. Yeah. Yeah, that was the question. Yeah. So. I don't know if you, if you've been to a, a malt house, but. The roaster, coffee ro or the, the, the roaster of, of the malt is basically the exact same machinery that a coffee roaster uses. It's, it's the same piece and it's a big, hot you know thing that spins around and that, uh, you know and, and uh, uh, it, you know your local coffee house is the same thing and that's just that's, that's not our business. It's there. I'm sure if they're they're model proves out to be economically viable, I think it's easy to make the assumption that they would expand their offerings into different kinds of colored malts as well. So should we talk about the beer? Let's do it. Yeah, I don't have any beer left anymore, so. Rather drink it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so this was a Belgian sparkling pale 
we had a great idea. These guys have such awesome experience with bottle conditioning. We thought, let's brew this with a, a Belgian yeast strain, have them do some bottle conditioning trials with it, uh, give it a really nice effervescent sparkling character. I, I think with the, the phenolics and the esters in the yeast, they just play so well, helping uh, express that malt character, that really nice, light, uh, but almost like candied character to the malt, uh, which is so unique for a base malt. Uh, it just works really well. I, I, I like it very much, and it has that light hop character there to support that as well. So it was Oregon hops, right? Uh, Oregon hops, Oregon Sterling's, Cascades. Cascades, and Crystal Malt, or hops. Mm -hmm. And then the Buck Farms, um, is it Mapleton? Yeah, maple yeah, So that's yeah. what you guys tasted. And then of the Mecca grade, it was their Pelton malt. So um, I think it also speaks to, you know, beer recipes. They can get very elaborate and you can do a lot of stuff, but you can also make really great beer in a simple, you know, way. Um, and so, I mean, there's not a lot of ingredients in this beer. Um, and it's still, you know, I think it, I, I hope you guys think it's quite nice. <laughs> One of the things I think is really cool about this beer is, especially in the world of collaborations, and Rob talked about, you know, kind of the, the, the lack of bandwidth to do too many of these projects, and I think we would, would absolutely echo that sentiment. So if we're going to do a collaboration, we want to do something that, that's unique and interesting. Typically what that has meant is adding more, more complexity in the process, in the ingredients, in the, the way that you make it. And of course, you know, we live in the era of, you know, a, a different beer every time you walk into your, your local pub. Uh, you know, they're rotating taps like crazy to get something new and something different and something new. And, and it kind of makes our life very difficult, but I think it also obscures one of the coolest things about our industry. And that's a really, really, well-made beer and this I think this beer is all about the brewer's art truly you know it's a single malt it's it's some pretty uh, clean hops you know one yeast strain and that's it and a really well-made beer and in this era of more differentiation I find that to be incredibly refreshing and I and I'm just I've fallen in love with this beer <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I just totally echo that. And I remember the first call that we had, you know, we had a conference call first discussing recipe ideas. And I think, you know, we had never, you know, designed a beer together. So we were dancing around it a little bit. And I think both of us were kind of quietly thinking the same thing. Like, you know, I don't remember which one of us kind of kind of started hinting towards simple. And it was just instantly we had the same approach because, you know, simple ingredients does not mean simple beer by any means, uh, you know, in terms of flavor profile. And this is a pretty complex beer for, you know, very simple inputs, if you will. Yeah, is, have we discussed the name yeah, yet? Uh, the Penny Groves Chance. The story is, yeah, unique, definitely with the, the Portland to Portland connection. Uh, it kind of came to us. Uh, the Pettigrove was one of the first guys out there who, who had a chance to name uh, Portland, Oregon. He was from Portland, Maine, uh, and they had a coin flip to decide who was going to get to name the town. So uh, Pettigrove won the coin flip and decided it would be named Portland after Portland, Maine. Uh, the other guy, I believe, was going to name it Boston if he won the coin flip. And I, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of glad he lost. I, I like Portland, Oregon. Yeah, well, Petty Grove's favorite city was Portland, Maine, and the other guy, I can't remember his name. 
But oh, his favorite city was Boston. And so they, it, it literally came down to a coin flip. It probably wouldn't have been as good a I, beer name. I cannot <laughs> imagine exactly. that city named Boston, but you know, maybe <laughs> just because it's been around so long. But. Yeah. So we have some other beers for you, right? Do you, let's see. Did you have a question? Okay. Oh. I have a question. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is sort of two-part. Uh, first, just how did you settle on the yeast strain that you used? And then, um, I don't know if you can tell me this, I hope so, but how did you get it so effervescent? We can't tell you that. You can't <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can't answer either of those yeah. questions. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll talk about the you, you can talk about the yeast. Yeah, just because um, we've been um, working with this rustic saison strain. Um, it's really kind of a workhorse strain as far as saisons. Um, it's different than um, it, it's new to us. We've used 3711 a lot, um, French saison strain, and so. Um, it's just been kind of our pet yeast, you know, recently, and so we told Jason about it, and he was he was quick to say, "Yeah, sure, let's let's oh, yes, give it a go," is. and I'll let him take the effervescent piece. <laughs> yeah, it was fun to work. We like like Rob alluded to earlier. We did a, a smaller batch at the pub in Bend, so we got to kind of play with the yeast. To, but it, I, I mean, I love the character. It's you know very nice and dry, but lots of great ester profile. In terms of the effervescent, you know, uh, Veronica talked about bottle conditioning. We do a lot of that. All of our beers are, every beer we bottle is, is bottle conditioned. So we have a fair bit of experience with it, but there is some challenges with working with new yeasts and, and making sure you have a good handle on how they are gonna, gonna work in a bottle. So uh, part of the project right from the get-go is that we needed to get some of the sample of the test batch sent to us at, at in, in, in Portland, Maine, so we could run some tests on it. So. We did that actually, actually twice because <laughs> the first keg that was sent was frozen in transit, which actually made a really interesting um, kind of ice saison that was really tasty. But uh, and then they did it again. So we ran a bunch of trials. Like I said, we have a lot of experience uh, with doing it to making sure we hit the you know get the carbonation level where we want it to. And um, it's still a little bit of a cross your fingers because when you only do something once, um, it's all a little bit hard. But I think we we hit it. You know what, before we go to the next beer, remind me your name. Jean. So Jean and I <laughs> met last night at City Tap, and Jean was up to 29,999, what was it? 19,000, well, you only still a uh, shitload of beers. <laughs> 19,999 beers on untapped, right? Rate beer, okay. I'm screwing the story up like crazy. <laughs> but he said, I want my 20,000th 20, beer to be Pettigrew's chance. So this is so big round of applause, 20,000th beer. So I'm curious. I'm curious what he thinks. Yeah, what do you think? Sounds like thumbs up. So, right. and actually, I was I was mentioning to Gene, I actually haven't tried this till tonight either. So, <laughs> I was like, we'll try it together tomorrow night. So. Yeah. Is there a question? So, okay. Hi. Um, so, I hope you forgive me for reading ahead a bit in the pamphlet, um, but we've been talking a lot about barley and um, sort of the bones of beer, right? The barley and the hops. Um, but have you thought about um, sort of locally sourced 
other ingredients, such as apricot, such as cherry, such as, you know, different. Uh, is that also something that you're thinking Great about? Segue. Way- <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. So in the way of like locally sourced agriculture, um, is that also something that's on your mind? Did you plant that question, Steve? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> to the next beer. I think the simple answer is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you, you got. I mean, we use, you know, locally sourced organic uh, uh, sour cherries in the dissident. Um, we use, you know, locally sourced. Uh, sour apples and a cider that we make at our for our pub. Uh, I mean, grapes for the grapes. Pinoslave. You know, we live in Oregon, great wine country. Um, yeah, I, uh, yes, definitely. Every chance we get, we have a list of in our pubs. We have a list of local suppliers that we get virtually everything from, and uh, we, I think, we're kind of hard pressed to to name the things we don't source within like that 500 mile radius, so. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about malt because malt's a huge part of beer. Obviously, <laughs> it's a huge ingredient, and for so many years, it wasn't even available to us. Um, but, you know, I guess I can go right into the beer yeah. you guys have in front of yes. you. Uh, Farm to Face is a beer that uh, we've been making for several years, which we use local peaches. And, you know, we we're fortunate in Maine, great, great area for lots of of uh, fruits, and we use a bunch. We use, you know, raspberries, cherries, strawberries, peaches, blackberries. Um, am I missing? I'm missing a couple, I'm sure. And we've just kind of made a decision that we'll only use local, fresh fruit. No frozen, no dried. So everything we use is, you know, right out of the field, into the beer within, you know, within 12 hours. Sometimes a lot less than that. Um, and so this is a this is you know a very different beer than what we just had. If you've tried it already, uh, it's it's also a fairly simple beer. It's basically base beer is kind of a I guess a pale ale you could say you know six or so percent um, fermented out with normal Saccharomyces yeast strain, uh, our normal house yeast strain, and then it's and that takes you know just a couple weeks. And then we put it into um, another tank on uh, about two pounds, two and a half pounds per gallon peaches and uh, lactobacillus and pediococcus culture, which you, know, you extract the fruit flavor and sour the beer at the same time. So still very, fairly simple ingredient-wise. It's, you know, as you can tell from the flavor profile, it's peach and sour, kind of, that's it. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, we use as much as we can local, and because we have so much local fruit, that ends up being a big chunk of what, of what we get. Yes. Oh, here's the mic. So. <laughs> a, a quick question as it relates to process around some of these, um, not specialty malts, but sort of uh, locally sourced malts. How do you think of that from a consistency perspective? Does it lend itself to uh, every, every uh, crop is different and it, it's just going to be a, a one-off beer every time you use this particular malt? Or does, is the expectation that there will be some consistency down the road, or how do you think of it from a process perspective? Well, I mean, at least for our, the monster we work with, um, he has, you know, he, he is starting out with the lab, and obviously consistently consistency will be important to them, um, but they do want to make their flavor unique in, in that this is grown in Oregon, and this is the flavor that, that you get in Oregon. I don't think we would ever choose to use it to replace any of our base malts and any of our production beers because we have a very high level of consistency and quality that we need in there. 
but you know, just like wine, where if the consumer is willing to accept certain you know variation with crappie or whatever, um, I think uh, that these barley's lend themselves to those types of products, um, and perhaps we just say, look, this is what we can make, and you know, it, it in production-wise too, that kind of you know limits how much we can make and. You know, one of the things I'll say is beer is an agricultural product. Uh, and as such, crop year to crop year, variations occur. I mean, we get a, a separate uh, lab report for every truckload of malt we get for the beers we make every day. Uh, and, and the brewers can adjust the formulation as necessary based on what that says. Hops year to year differ sometimes dramatically. Uh, the same hop from the same field, you, you know, grown the same way, just different, uh, you know, crop year conditions. One of the cool things about these little malt houses is that they may not be that consistent. The, the other side of that coin is they don't produce enough for us to put them in full production anyway. Maybe one day they will, and then consistency will, will result as well. But right now, I think we're having fun finding out what these things can do. And, and that's, you know, that, that's what we do, and, it, and it's, a, it's a great way to make a living. So you have a new beer out in front of you. So this is Pinot Suave. You recently released this beer. So Pinot Noir um, <laughs> is obviously big in, in, um, in Oregon. Um, this beer, I mean, the cool thing is the base beer it was a Belgian strong gold. So all the color in the beer it, it comes from Pinot Noir must that we added to the barrels from Oregon wineries, um, Meridian Estates um, in Silverton, Oregon is where we got uh, the, the must. Well, we got the grapes there and then we used our local winery, Marigus, to help crush uh, the grapes and put it in the barrels. And then it was uh, barrel aged in Pinot Noir barrels. So. Again, I think it's cool to see all that color drawn from um, just the grapes and the must. Um, and it has kind of that, you know, blend of some wine, some, you know, wine notes and um, beer notes as well. Uh, yes, you, um, I tried the, I'm going to get the number of counties wrong. The 16 counties outside. You got it. You got it. You got it right. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm a trained professional. Um, in any case, I was just wondering if you could talk about that a sec uh, for a bit and explain what were the hardest and easiest ingredients to source in it. Yeah, so 16 counties is a beer that, that, that uh, we're making now, actually year-round. We just, something we've been working on for really, I guess, a couple of years now, and it all ties into this, the, the malt um, conversations we've already had. Um, uh, 16 counties, there's 16 counties in the state of Maine, that's where the name comes from. Um, we uh, started kind of working, like, like just like Veronica alluded to too earlier, we started working with some of the local maltsters when they were, I mean, they were still very small, but when they were really small and like little pilot systems, and they would send us, you know, five pounds of malt or 20 pounds of malt, and we would do little teeny batches for them and give them sensory feedback and, and so on and so forth. And that kind of led into as they grew, they sent us more, and they wanted us to use more and so on, and we, and we kind of kept sizing things up. And uh, in the end, we, we decided, you know, if we really, you know, want to support these guys on a regular basis, you know, it would be great to give them consistent purchasing instead of just – 
you know, we'll take 3,000 pounds from you now, and then, you know, who knows when we'll buy more from you. So we decided, we made a kind of decision to do a year-round beer called 16 Counties. We're doing a draft, and in, and, um, and in our 750 milliliter cork bottles, we're actually pouring it at, at our, our booth here tonight. Um, and it's 100% main grown and processed grains. So the hops are way, way far away from being, you know, uh, on any kind of scale in Maine for us, but all of the malt is from Maine. Uh, it's a, a blend of the same Buck Farms malt that I meant, mentioned earlier, another small maltster as well called Blue Ox, uh, and then um, some raw, uh, raw grains, so unmalted grains, some oats and some, and some wheat. So oats and wheat, to answer your question specifically, were easier to get just because they're grown. Oats are very commonly grown in Maine and wheat to some degree too. And with raw grains, it skips the malting process. It just goes through a cleaning process basically. Um, you can't, for those who never brewed before, you can't make a beer from raw grains unless there's malted barley involved as well. Um, so it's just a small percentage, it's about 10% of the, of the grains are the raw grains. Um, so, you know, like we've kind of talked about, we, were, we worked with those farmers for a while, and, um, you know, we felt, originally when we started that project, we thought it would be like maybe 50% main grown and 50%, you know, our normal base malt, but we were so happy with the quality overall that, that we went 100, so it's 100%. Um, and there is some variation from batch to batch, for sure. Nope. Um, we'd love it someday if there were, but hops are grown on such a small scale. It's just teeny, teeny scale. They are grown in Maine. Um, uh, they're not, they're grown. The only real opportunity for us to use them is what are called wet hops, so without, without any kind of drying and pelletizing. But it's super, I mean, it's, you know, an acre here and there, you know, whereas, you know, out in the Yakima Valley where most hops are grown, the, I think the smallest farms are, you know, hundreds of acres. So the scale is just very small. Uh, so potential two-part question, but maybe just one part, depending on your answer. <laughs> um, so you were talking about the economics of the maltsters who are paying a lot more attention to which barley in which area, and you know, there's a lot more science going into it. Um, is it just these kind of small malt houses, or is it you're seeing more... Um, more of an increase in cost across the board as well, um, or is it really just the the small, you know, boutique, so to speak, uh, mall houses? Yeah, I, I would I would say it's the boutique. I mean, um, I think the larger um, uh, maltsters are still interested in this flavor project, and they're very interested with what's going on in the boutique malts community. They're you know they're asking us, well, what did you think about that variety? It's like you know because they they might be a little worried, you know, but. Um, it'll take a long time for them to actually compete with, um, you know, the larger um, malt producers. But, yeah, they're interested in what they're doing for sure. For, the, for, part, for the really big farms, uh, barley has been a hard crop to justify just because the pricing wasn't high enough. Now, mo most of these small boutique farms, at least where we are, if they weren't growing barley, they might be growing hay or alfalfa or you know something that it, there's not a lot of money in. I mean all they're doing is sustaining their land and keeping their water rights. You know, so giving them an opportunity even though the cost of the bar of the malt is high based on our other sources 
giving them that marketplace to sell that product and gives them another option of what to do with their land. And, and like we've been talking about, I mean, these are multi-generational family-run farms. And they have to produce something from that land. And if, it, just in order to keep the house and, and the family going. And if it's not barley, it's gotta be something else. And so this is a model that they're kind of excited about because they can, because they can earn more money per acre than they might otherwise. Hi, how are you doing? A um, couple questions. One, could you repeat again the, uh, the wineries that the grapes came from for the uh, Pinot Suave? Meridian Estates um, in uh, Silverton, Oregon. Okay. And we crushed the grapes at Marigus Winery in, um, well, in Bend, Oregon. Great. Um, and then I mean, the, the barrels, though, do you recall the? I, I can't yeah. recall. Yeah, I know there was some Washington um, oak in there as well, but both Oregon and Washington Great. oak. And uh, forgive me, ignorance, but could you guys each kind of talk about where your brewery's names came from? Well, I can tell you Deschutes is named that we, we are in Deschutes County. Uh, originally, and we are on basically the Deschutes River. The Deschutes River was named because originally in the 1840s, uh, the area where we live was settled by French fur trappers. And they, the, the, it was Farewell Bend Curve, which is where they could cross the river and the, uh, the wagon trains heading west to the Willamette Valley, they said farewell and that was, that was where they crossed. Uh, the French fur trappers called it Riviere de Chute, the, uh, the river of the falls or river of the rapids, if you will. And that's how uh, it originally got its name and that's where we got our name. So Allagash is also named after a river, but it's way, 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 way north of Portland. Probably a five, well, it is a five hour drive north of Portland because we just did it. But uh, when I was trying to think of a name, I ta I'm terrible at coming up with names. I, I have all the names of beers at the brewery, like white, double, triple, all the boring <laughs> names, all the good names. Yeah. All At least the you put the creativity like in the beer. Genius. Yeah. All the names like Curio, Interlude, Confluence. I don't get in 16 counties. I don't come up with those names. I'm not good with names. So I tasked a bunch of buddies when I was trying to come up with a brewery name um, with coming up with names. But one of my conditions was I wanted something that would resonate with names. Did you Mainers. come up with Cool I actually did come up with that. <laughs> well, even though there's been a vessel named Cool Ship for centuries, but. Uh, I think it's spelled different. It, it is, yeah, in Flemish it is. But uh, I wanted a name that would resonate with Mainers because uh, we sell beer in 17 states now, but when I started back in 94, I figured we'd only sell beer in Maine and we'd rely on Mainers to support uh, our brewery's existence and the beer would be made, made by Mainers, it would always be made in Maine. So I wanted a name that would uh, resonate with Mainers and a buddy of mine came up with that name, Allagash. I like the ring of it, but it was, it was funny. We've been in business 21 years, and when I started, I said, okay, we'll take the name Allagash, and right when I get the brewery built, I'll brew a batch of beer, and I'll go up and canoe the Allagash so I can say I've canoed the Allagash. But basically, it took me 21 years to canoe the Allagash. <laughs> um, so for 20 years, I've been asked, you know, why did you choose that name? Did you grow up canoeing the Allagash, and have you ever been up there? And I was like, no, nah, I've never been there. But, <laughs> 
Finally, three weeks ago, we took a week off and Jason came and uh, 11 of us from the brewery Canute, did a five-day trip down the Allagash, which it was an unbelievable experience. So finally, I've canoed the Allagash. And now, whenever anyone asks me, have you ever been up there? Have you ever canoed the Allagash? I'm going to be like, of course I have. I've got a brewery. I've <laughs> no, got a brewery named Allagash. Of course I've been up there. <laughs> so anyway, we're named after the Allagash River, but it's way, way, way up north. Rob, I'm going to have to call bullshit on that because it's maniac, not Mainer. I, think, okay, I believe, well, I, I believe it's Maniac. <laughs> yeah. I'll never be a Mainer. They, I'm from outside of Boston. I'm from Massachusetts. They call us mass holes up in Maine. So <laughs> I'm, I'm always going to be a mass hole. So. <laughs> so the beer. If should we talk about the beer? Please. Talk about the beer. Yeah. <laughs> Hand gestures from the back of the room. We should talk about the beer. Um, so yeah, the, the beer you have in front of you now is um, our uh, Cool Ship Resurgum, which is uh, a beer we only uh, normally sell at the brewery, so kind of a cool thing that it's here today. Um, but we decided to pour it because it's, and as we're talking about terroir and, and you know, local ingredients, uh, this is a beer that is in, completely fermented with local yeast. So, um, you know, we could... This could be its own salon, I suppose, uh, just talking about this process. But just in a quick nutshell, um, we, in 2007, we uh, decided that we wanted to kind of embark on a project to see if we could make spontaneously fermented beer uh, in Portland, Maine. You know, basically, we modeled our process after Lambic production, something that's been done in Belgium for, for a long time. Uh, and, you know, up to that point, there, the kind of conventional wisdom and any limited literature that was out there suggested that you could only spontaneously ferment uh, beer within some kind of radius of, of uh, the magical River Seine around Brussels. Um, and we kind of you know, wanted to see if, if we could uh, see if it could be done elsewhere. So um, basically the, the word comes out of the brew house at full uh, boiling temperature, no mechanical cooling whatsoever. It goes into a vessel called the cool ship, basically looks like a big brownie pan, a uh, very shallow vessel, and it, it naturally cools in there overnight. And in that cooling process, it's also inoculated with wild yeast and bacteria. From that uh, point forward, it goes right into barrels where it spends the rest of its life of fermentation, which is two to three years of fermentation and aging. Uh, this beer, we make three beers from that same base beer. Two are with fruit. This one is unfruited, kind of a blend of one, two, and three-year-old uh, aged spontaneous beer. It's kind of our interpretation of a goose. I'm sure many of you have had uh, a traditional goose. This is our kind of interpretation of it. So, uh, true local yeast here. Yeah, so the question is just about, does it change depending on the yeast? Uh, I suppose yes. Um, you know, we two answers to that. One, we we're very careful with when we do it. So we follow a very very strict temperature guideline and time of year. So we only do it in November and December, and um, we only do it when the temperature is in a certain range that we're happy with. And then the other side of that is all these beers are blended in the end, uh, and that's kind of the final quality control piece, if you will, where we'll blend. The barrels that we think are the right fit to get the same flavor profile. Wow, we are powering through these beers. <laughs> <laughs> we are. 
man, I, I told Rob, I think we need another glass. I, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, want, I don't want to have to move through these beers so quickly, but time yeah. marches on. Yeah. All right. Uh, you've spoken a lot tonight about how you locally source all your ingredients, but I can't help but notice that your two breweries are very, very far apart from each other. Do you sign agreements with those farmers that they can only source to you, or do you completely leave it open to other local brewers in the area that they're allowed to use the same farmers and they can use the same barley and all that? And have you had issues where other uh, brewers are using the same ingredients and come up with similar beers and has the, I guess, just general local or saturation of the craft beer industry affected? All right, at all? I'll, I'll proselytize a little bit on that one. You know, uh, I think Sam Calagione uh, from Dogfish Head once famously said, uh, craft beer is 98% asshole free. <laughs> and and uh, no, we don't, we don't, I mean, he's in business, we're in business. If the partnership works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, kind of, it, 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 you know, as Rob said, it's a very, collaborative collegial industry and I think that extends to our suppliers as well as our competitors and the idea that we would restrict somebody from selling a product that could help improve their business and their lives and their family and because of some imagined uh, proprietary hold we have, I, I, I cannot imagine a world where I want to live there. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Gary. Uh, I am all for, I mean, if 16 counties, which is what we make with locally made grains, if, if that does well and other brewers um, are able to create a market, because we're doing well with the 16 counties to be sourcing local grains, that's just contributing more to small and sustainable agriculture in the state of Maine. And you know we're all for it. There's nothing we'd like more than for the Buck Brothers to be able to uh, grow more barley and malt more barley, and uh, you know have more sustainable agriculture in the state. Yeah, and this might be you know a lofty goal, but uh, I remember talking to Seth at Mechagray, Like, wouldn't it be cool if we created you know an Oregon beer style? So it was all Oregon ingredients. So it was just like a Kolsch or champagne or something that that is from the region. And all the brewers did it, and you know people would come, and and then people would copy the style. You know, but like I said, that might be lofty, but using local ingredients i mean i think that's you know that could start something like that that would be pretty exciting but we have we have shifted the paradigms in harder ways than that so you never know yeah i mean nothing would nothing would make me happier than, the, than to see the buck boys where we get our grain be more and more and more successful and the only way they're going to be successful or one of the key ways they could be successful is if not only we're buying grain but if you know, Rising Tide and Bissell Brothers and Foundation Brewing and Geary's in Maine are buying their grain also. So we're all for it. Uh, as any uh, sommelier would point out that Pinot Noir especially, whether it's grown in Oregon or California or France, the, a big influence on the flavor of the, the end product depends on the soil, the weather, the amount of sunlight that particular grape gets. Have you guys noticed or is there any kind of research going into the uh, difference in flavor profile of grains uh, between 
soil profiles or the amount of the kind of weather they're experiencing or the amount of sunlight they're getting. I think it certainly yeah. applies to hops. It does. I mean, I'm sure it does to malt as well. Yeah, but yeah. for barley, um, there's that flavor research project that's going on right now that, I mean, for mecca grade, it's, it's very unique soil and the irrigation practices are very unique too. It's all canal fed. Um, and then when you look at Skagit malt as another boutique malter in Washington, they don't irrigate at all. It's all from rainfall. So similar to different wineries and where they are, they're definitely talking about how you know how they irrigate the soil how that contributes to the flavor of that barley this is very new territory though yeah what kind of flavor differences do you say there are between different weather patterns and things like that i mean between we i don't know it's 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 pretty new to us to be tasting you know these two boutique malts i would say that um they've been able to grow barley with lower pro, lower protein levels which are very similar to European varieties, so that's kind of new um, in the states. Um, so you know, you know, people have thought like, well, you can only make Pilsner with Weirman malt because it has that character, and no American, you know, Pilsner malt is going to match that. I think some of these boutique malts have that similar kind of doughiness and, and comes from like a lower protein level. Um, but you know, between the two, we're just starting on using our sensory panel to to test the different malts that are, uh, you know close to our area. We're lucky we have, you know, a couple. I, I guess you guys do too. Yeah, yeah I think the big, the, I think, like Ron said, it's very early. But the bigger, I think the bigger research at this point is on variety. Because for so long, uh, the varieties that were grown of barley in the U.S. was, for, for malting barley, was 100% driven by Anheuser Bush, based on, you know, protein content that they wanted and, and flavor profile that they wanted, which, you know, may not be malt driven it's going to be very clean driven and there's there's a, a lot of of work being done on varietal differences first and i think you know hopefully someday it'll get to soil but and it's not just the small malters it's worth mm -hmm. noting you know it's, um, there are some projects brewers associations involved with some projects um, american malting barley associations involved with some projects of trialing new varieties that are more craft driven mm -hmm. and that's really only been in the last couple of years well, despite um, hammering through some beers, as Gary mentioned, uh, we're getting pretty close to the end of our time. Maybe if you guys could talk about this last beer, and then we might have time for just one more question, and then uh, we'll need to kind of wrap it up for the next room. Yeah, so the beer we've got in front of us is The Dissident. Uh, the Dissident was our very first uh, sour beer that we've ever done with wild yeast. Uh, it's a Flanders-style brown ale. Uh, just a really nice uh, combination of Britannomyces flavors there, which naturally lends kind of a cherry character. Uh, that and uh, the local <clears throat> cherries that we get from Chapin Farms over in the Willamette Valley. Uh, we age that in oak for about 18 months. Uh, it just really has that beautiful cherry character, a slight sweetness, the tartness, the acidity makes it a really nice full round flavor there. Any additional thoughts on it? I think it's freaking good. Definitely, definitely so. There you go. As a fan of Belgian beer, I think it's awesome that you guys are doing open fermentation. That's amazing. Just the whole process and the idea. and the fact that you didn't have to import Belgian spiders and cobwebs. And <laughs> awesome. As a home brewer, the one thing you guys didn't mention, which I'm told is rudimentary, but water. 
big because we boil it. I use mineral water. We use spring water. It seems, at least for a starter, it's important. I can, I can tell you in Bend, the water that comes out of the tap is the same water you buy at the grocery store in a bottle. It's so delicious. Except, it's except so delicious. for the little bit of chlorine that they have to put in yeah. it. But it came from, comes from the same source. And, uh, you know, it's spring-fed mountain, river, aquifer, you know, it's stuff that's been, uh, we have two sources, a surface water source that comes off a glacier out of a spring uh, up in the mountains, and then we have groundwater, which has been filtered through basalt for at least 60 years. They, they, they don't know how long it's been percolating through because they haven't found any evidence that would indicate a year, any radioactive isotopes, fertilizers, any evidence of the hand of man. And uh, so we're really lucky to be there. It has mineral content. It has uh, some silica. It has some, and it does vary depending upon uh, surface water, groundwater source, and the city switches back and forth. So, you know, the pH changes and the mineral content changes and so forth, but uh, it's... But we talked about our water. I mean, we're, we're nerds. These guys are pros to work with. It was so fun to, to, to do this project. But, um, yeah, I mean, we brought up, you know, okay, well, the calcium content in our water is this. And they said, actually, ours is really similar, so let's not adjust salts and, you know, let's not. Yeah, you know. I was going to say we're equally as lucky. We get all our water from the Sebago Lake, which is, a, you know, the reservoir in the area, and it's spectacular water. I mean, it was interesting. We thought to kind of match the – the pub batch versus the larger scale batch at our place that we'd have to do a little bit of work, but it was kind of remarkably mm -hmm. similar when we shared the analysis of the water. But it does it does make a big difference for sure. It's you know a big part of, of, of a beer. It does. Yeah, I mean, with technology, you can filter, you can add minerals back, you can you can do a lot of stuff. But it is really wonderful to have the stuff that you get be exactly what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so for Pettigrove's Come chance, we Oregon. didn't do any water adjustments, but, you know, the, the beer you have is, 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 is main water. <laughs> well, I think the beers we've had tonight both exemplify, you know, two of the great things about craft beer, which is a, the, the pride of place that we all have about our own locality and how really cool that local beer is and also the spirit of collaboration and friendship that has always really permeated craft beer. So uh, please join me in thanking our friends from Allegash and Deschutes for some great beers and some great talks. And we're both right across the way. If you got other questions or want to just drink beer, we'll be there. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.